This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, October 27th. I'm Doug Blair. And I'm Virginia Allen. One of the greatest issues facing West Coast cities today is homelessness and drug addiction. From the year 2000 to 2017, America saw a jump in drug overdose deaths from 17,000 to over 70,000, according to Michael Schellenberger. Schellenberger is the author of the new book, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. He joins the show today to talk about the decline of cities like San Francisco under far-left leadership and how these cities can be saved from complete ruin. But before we get to Virginia's conversation with Michael Schellenberger, let's hit the top news stories of the day. The Ohio School Boards Association is ending its formal relationship with the National School Boards Association over a letter associating parents with acts of domestic terrorism. The Ohio Association issued a statement Tuesday saying their decision to break ties with the National School Board Association was prompted by the recent letter to President Joe Biden requesting federal intervention at local school board meetings. As you all may recall, the large school board association sent a letter to the Biden administration at the end of September asking for help looking into whether the actions of parents toward school personnel could be classified as acts of domestic terrorism. The Ohio group said in a statement that they believe the National School Boards Association letter to the Biden administration demonstrated how out of touch the National Association is with the concerns of local school boards and the principle of local control. Because of that, Ohio School Boards Association no longer sees the value of continued National School Board Association membership. Missouri, Louisiana, and Pennsylvania have also broken their membership with the National School Boards Association. GOP members of the House Judiciary Committee sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland on Monday, asking him to withdraw a memo directing the FBI and DOJ to investigate incidents between aggrieved parents and local school boards. The letter read, On October 22, 2021, the NSBA, or the National School Boards Association, expressed regret about and formally apologized for its letter to President Biden. Because the NSBA letter was the basis for your memorandum, and given that your memorandum has been and will continue to be read as threatening parents and chilling their protected First Amendment rights, the only responsible course of action is for you to fully and unequivocally withdraw your memorandum immediately. Additionally, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy tweeted on Monday that the entire basis for Biden's DOJ to treat parents as domestic terrorists has been dismantled after the NSBA said they regret and apologize for the letter. DOJ should retract the memo and the Biden admin owes parents an apology and a commitment to end this baseless targeting. The letter and tweet follow on the heels of a Friday apology from the National School Boards Association for calling parents domestic terrorists, an initial letter to President Biden and the DOJ, asking for assistance dealing with local parents. They wrote, On behalf of NSBA, we regret and apologize for the letter, before adding there was no justification for some of the language included in the letter. Garland has so far attempted to deny the memo he issued would be used to target parents' First Amendment rights. During a House Judiciary Committee oversight hearing last Thursday, the Attorney General said, 
I want to be clear that the Justice Department supports and defends the First Amendment right of parents to complain as vociferously as they wish about the education of their children, about the curriculum taught in the schools. Biological men are no longer allowed to compete in women's sports in Texas. Governor Greg Abbott signed a bill Monday banning transgender athletes from competing on teams that differ from their biological sex. The bill will take effect in January and applies to all students from elementary school to college. Opponents to the bill say it is discriminatory against transgender students. Ricardo Martinez, CEO of the LGBTQ group Equality Texas, said the group was devastated at the passage of this bill. But many groups are hailing the legislation as a huge win for Texas women. Family Policy Alliance spokeswoman Meridian Baldacci celebrated the bill in a statement saying, It's a good day for girls in Texas. Female athletes should grow up with a level playing field in life and in sports. Financial experts are sounding the alarm that Thanksgiving is going to be expensive this year. According to the New York Times, it could be the most expensive Thanksgiving ever recorded. Due to ongoing supply chain issues, ballooning inflation rates, and a myriad of other economic and labor problems, each and every component of the average Thanksgiving meal is set to cost more than years prior. Per CBS Money Watch, 2021 prices for food are up 3.7%, set against a 20-year average of around 2.4%. According to a report released Friday from the Department of Agriculture, whole frozen turkeys between 8 and 16 pounds currently cost 25 cents more per pound than last year at this time. Other Thanksgiving staples like canned pumpkin and packaged dinner rolls are also impacted by price hikes likely due to steel shortages resulting from the pandemic. Basic materials used to ship produce around the country, like wooden pallets and cardboard containers, remain difficult to find or prohibitively expensive. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Michael Schellenberger as we discuss his new book, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. We're all guilty of it, spending too much time on the internet watching silly videos. But it's the 21st century, and maybe it's time for a change. At the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel, you'll find videos that both entertain and educate, including virtual events featuring the biggest names in American politics, original explainers and documentaries, and heritage experts diving deep on topics like election integrity, China, and other threats to our democracy. All brought to you by the nation's most broadly supported Public Policy Research Institute. Start watching now at heritage.org slash YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe and share. I am so pleased to welcome Michael Schellenberger to the Daily Signal podcast. Michael is the author of the new book, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. Michael, thanks so much for being here and congratulations on the new book. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you have lived and worked in San Francisco for a really long time. Explain why you wrote this book. You do not mince words in the title, San Francisco. What is the mission behind this book? Sure. Um, Well, I wrote this book because I love San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco in 1993 after graduating from college. I moved to San Francisco to work on progressive causes, radical left causes. I'm best known for my work on the environment, in particular around nuclear energy. 
which I've been focused on for the last 20 years. But in the late 1990s, I worked for a number of George Soros-funded nonprofits. I worked for George Soros's foundation. I helped to advocate to decriminalize um, drugs, uh, promote drug treatment, promote harm reduction, including the uh, the exchange of clean needles for for dirty ones. Worked with Maxine Waters uh, from Los Angeles to add, to organize civil rights leaders in support of needle exchange. And as drug overdose deaths rose from 17,000 in the year 2000 to over 70,000 by 2017, I started to worry. And this is an issue that I have always cared a lot about, even if I hadn't worked on it very much in the last um, couple decades. You know, my aunt had schizophrenia. My parents are psychologists. I've, uh, I live in the Bay Area. I live in Berkeley across the Bay from San Francisco. Um, I'm still in many ways a bleeding heart liberal. I'm a very sensitive person. Uh, I really uh, bothers me to see the suffering of people that are obviously suffering from drug addiction or mental illness or some combination of the two. I wrote a couple of pieces for Forbes in 2019. Um, the first one I wrote was sort of around the contribution of housing to homelessness. But then after I wrote that, a number of friends were like, look, you know, you, you have to consider drug addiction and mental illness. And I was like, yeah, of course. Um, I knew that was a big part of it. And I read a lot more about it and learned that a lot of the things I believed were wrong. You know, one of the things that you listen, when you interview progressives still to this day, and I discovered this quite a bit in my research, they, they blame Reagan. Uh, <laughs> first as governor in the 1960s, and then as president um, for the homeless crisis, even though, you know, progressives have controlled California for decades. Um, they have a super, Democrats have a super majority in Congress. We spend more than any other state per capita on homelessness and mental illness, and we have the worst outcomes. And so I wanted to write San Francisco to both get to the bottom of what's really going on and also figure out what the solutions are, uh, because it's it's obviously we're dealing with a catastrophe. You know, I mentioned drug overdose rest, deaths rose from 17,000 to 70,000 by 2017. Last year, drug deaths were 93,000, which is almost three times as many people than die from car accidents and four times as many people as die from homicide. So clearly we are in the midst of a massive drug crisis and it felt like nobody was offering a particularly clear explanation of it or offering very good solutions. I love that that curiosity and that drive to say, okay, there, there's obviously an issue here and we actually need to find a solution. You're asking the hard questions. That's that's something we really need more of. Now, Michael, for, for those who have not been to San Francisco, for those who are, are not too familiar maybe with the situation there, if you were to leave your house, cross the bay, and walk through the streets of San Francisco, give us a picture of what we would see. Sure. So, you know, San Francisco remains, you know, one of the most spectacularly beautiful cities in the, in the world. Just driving across the Bay Bridge into San Francisco, its skyline is stunning. You know, it's um, uh, three major bridges uh, from, uh, you know, into San Francisco. Um, you know, it's incredible skyline, beautiful, surrounded by water, humpback whales not far from the coast. But as soon as you drive downtown, you see tents, you see what are euphemistically called homeless encampments, but they are more accurately described as open drug scenes. That's the expression that's used by European researchers. I point out that um, 
the Europeans dealt with this exact same problem in the 1980s uh, in places like Zurich, Switzerland, Amsterdam, Netherlands, uh, Lisbon, Portugal, Frankfurt, Germany. And what you find is just these are people that uh, are living on the street. They're living on the street because they're uh, almost all of them, if not really all of them, are suffering from severe drug addiction, severe drug and alcohol addiction. In the 1980s, what we called homelessness, and I point out in the book that homelessness is a propaganda word. It was designed to mm -hmm. mislead people about what's really going on. It was designed by progressives to mislead people into thinking that people live on the street because they can't afford the rent. That's not the case. Uh, the people on the street we know have been are there for because of addiction and untreated mental illness. And, you know, look, there's some people that think that all addiction is a consequence of untreated mental illness. I'm not sure I would go that far, but clearly a significant percentage of people on the street are suffering from some sort of mental illness, whether severe like schizophrenia or uh, just depression, untreated depression. And and yeah, you see, you know, you see people openly using drugs, smoking fentanyl, which is which is responsible for about half of the drug deaths people defecating in public. It's very common to see that. Uh, and you see just a lot of tents. Um, you know, uh, hundreds of people, San Francisco officially has about 5,000 unsheltered homeless, meaning people that are not in shelters, but on the streets are, are actually thousands more because a lot of the people on the streets using drugs are people that, that may have a shelter, they may have a, an apartment or a single resident occupancy room but are still living on the streets. So that's what you see. It looks like a third, like it looks like our, what we think a third world country looks like. I'm somebody that spent a fair amount of time in Brazil, in Africa, in India. I've been, I, I go to slums every time I go to developing and poor countries. This is different in, this, in the sense that obviously San Francisco is one of the richest cities in the world. I mean, the number of billionaires per capita is, is huge. It's obviously the center of much of our technology boom. And so the, the drug crisis is the result of policies, deliberate policies that are imposed by progressives, demanded by progressives to not, not treat addiction, not treat mental illness, and to basically defend the right of people to sleep anywhere, defecate anywhere, and not uh, be arrested, not be mandated treatment. Hmm. Okay, so I know you you dive really deeply into this in the book in San Francisco. Excellent, excellent read. Encourage uh, all of our Thank listeners you. to pick up a copy. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. But talk a little bit more about the policies. What what do you mean by policies uh, led to this? How how have we gotten to this moment in San Francisco uh, where there are literally, like you say, now these encampments and individuals openly using drugs and no one is is stepping in to stop them yeah there's so many levels to pick on this why so i really required a whole book um and i i told people you know even though even after three hours with joe rogan it yeah. still didn't cover all of it but at the very simplest level you do not need to have anybody living on the street if you just build enough shelters and require people to use them that's what most cities most developed and civilized cities around the world have done before the pandemic new york basically sheltered 99% of its homeless. 
And the reason that we we have so many people unsheltered living on the street in California is because the progressives have opposed building sufficient shelters and requiring people to use them. So at the simplest level, it's just that. It's just that we have had what's called a housing first policy rather than a shelter first policy. Housing first, of course, meaning this idea that anybody who wants their own apartment should be able to get one. It's completely ludicrous. I mean, even if you are a socialist, even if you're a radical left, it doesn't make any sense. You can't provide that much apartments and housing for people. First of all, you just can't build it in San Francisco because there's so much nimbyism and the regulations are so strict against building housing. But also there's just not the money for it. You can't just provide free apartments for everybody. That may seem more obvious to listeners of Heritage Foundation than, than listeners to MSNBC, but it's just the fact of the matter then you kind of go back further and you go, what is the history of untreated mental illness and addiction? San Francisco is a city that has always tolerated much more extensive alcohol and drug use than other cities. A very high, you know, more bars than churches uh, for, you know, its entire founding. It was the last city to ban opium dens in the 19th century. It obviously was the epicenter of the the new drug culture in the 1960s, which introduced most famously marijuana and psychedelics, um, but much more insidiously heroin and amphetamines. And we've really, um, those things have only gotten worse. The deinstitutionalization of psychiatric hospitals, the closure of psychiatric hospitals begins after World War II. It accelerates under President John Kennedy it was actually a progressive, um, it was progressives who led the charge to empty the mental hospitals. The promise was we would have community-based care. That was never built. It's something that progressives blame Reagan for as governor, but the truth is that, that half of the people in psychiatric hospitals had already been released by the time Reagan became governor. It's one of the many things I debunk in the book. I also debunk the claim that Reagan slashed the federal budget for housing. In fact, the budget for the federal budget for housing was basically steady during Reagan's years in office. Um, at the same time, I, by the way, I should add, I do make a critique of Republicans and conservatives in the book at the end. I argue that Republicans and conservatives have not offered a proper urban policy that they've been, you know, Republicans and conservatives tend to be more suburban and rural and they don't care as much about the cities and they tend to look down on the cities and so they haven't engaged in the cities and I, I extend that criticism at the end but nonetheless it's wrong to blame Reagan and Republicans for what's happened in San Francisco and so what you basically have is massive untreated mental illness including severe mental illness you have the ACLU which I think in many other contexts has done good things I have been a longtime supporter of ACLU but in this case we have the ACLU irrationally defending uh, leaving people with schizophrenia on the street in states of psychosis, using hard drugs, uh, living in totally unsafe, unsanitary conditions, uh, having a complete double standard in, when it comes to requiring people with dementia, for example, our grandparents who suffer from dementia, either from Alzheimer's or something else. We don't let grandma and grandpa wander onto the streets, and yet we allow people in psychotic states to do that they use a double standard to justify it. And what I get at the bottom line here is that this is a victim ideology, meaning that there's an ideology here and it's just as dumb as it sounds, unfortunately. It's the idea that you can classify certain groups of people as victims. The racist aspect of this 
is that progressives classify all African-Americans, all people of color, except for Asians, as victims. And, but they also classify people with mental illness as victims. They classify children, they classify women, you know, gays and lesbians, uh, people suffering addiction are all classified as victims. That's the first thing they do. The second thing they do, which is as insidious, is that they believe that to victims, everything should be given and nothing demanded. This is terrible for raising kids. It's also terrible for dealing with people suffering from addiction and mental illness. You know, the fact of the matter is a fair number of the people on the street are, have been victimized. I mean, it's true. There's a lot of, there's a higher percentage of people on the street that were abused, you know, foster kids and were, you know, physically or sexually or emotionally abused. And that's terrible, but that's, that does not merit giving people the cash to use drugs, giving them hotel rooms in which to use drugs, giving people the paraphernalia in which to use drugs. During the pandemic, the city of San Francisco was even, the work, the social workers for the city were actually buying people alcohol and delivering alcohol and drugs to people's hotel rooms. It's, it's so bonkers that when I describe it, it sounds like I'm describing a fictional dystopian film, but this is actually what's happening in San Francisco and so the San Francisco-ness that the title refers to, yes, it's referring to the folks that are living in squalor on the streets, but it also is referring to a kind of compassion sickness, a compassion unchecked by discipline, by reciprocity, by personal responsibility, by the things that people need in order to improve their lives. Yeah. And you talked a lot about that kind of victim, victim mentality, victim mindset during your conversation with Joe Rogan, like you mentioned, excellent conversation. So how does that translate? You refer to it with with Joe Rogan as kind of a coddling mindset. How does that translate to policy? What's the what's the line of thinking that we're seeing from politicians going from, okay, these people are, are victims, we need to care for them. But how has that translated in policy to we do nothing to stop them from, you know, openly using drugs as much as they want, living wherever they want, doing whatever they want. Yeah, I mean, you, you just said it. It's the coddling that has been increasing really for 150 years is now extended to people on the street. So we're coddling the people on the street. We're coddling addicts. We're coddling criminals. We're coddling, you know, would-be murderers rather than providing them with the discipline and the rules that they need in order to live happy and healthy lives. I mean, look, to some extent, the, cod, the what we call coddling started out as kind of positive. I mean, let's face it, life on the farm was pretty rough. Kids were beaten with sticks and rods. We know the rise of cod. We know that coddling was already increasing when you started hearing people say things like spare the rod, spoil the child. So there's always been a recognition that, you know, as we go from farm to city, kids, you know, this is to some extent, this is a process that's been really wonderful for children. They can be children. They don't have to be workers, little workers or little adults, which is how we used to see kids. But obviously it's gotten way too far. You know, I mean, we see the rise of participation trophies for kids that don't succeed in sports, basically a shielding of children from adversity. And yet we know that adversity, that overcoming adversity is what builds strength and resilience. I mean, one of the questions I had is, you know, there's a lot of upper middle class parents or middle class parents that are very progressive and liberal in the Bay Area 
who, yeah, they coddle their kids to some extent, but they also require their kids to do their homework. They require their kids to do chores. They require their kids to do sports. They require some amount of adversity to their kids. But then when it comes to their politics, they'll say things like, you shouldn't require abstinence, for example, before giving people housing, because that would be blaming the victim. So there's a bit of a double standard here. One of the most interesting things I discovered is that the drug rehab centers in Malibu, which is this very rich coastal community north of Los Angeles, you know, the thing that rock stars and celebrities go to, $50,000 a month, they're very strict in drug rehab for rich people. They're very strict. They're hard on you. Um, that's what you pay for. And yet for the poor on Skid Row in Los Angeles, which is just a devastating area, you know, thousands of people addicted to hard drugs dying on the streets. I mean, literally, it's it sounds bizarre to describe, but literally when I visited Skid Row last time, there were just people passed out on the sidewalk um, on fentanyl, on heroin. That's it, just in the sunlight, you know, lying on the ground. I mean, there was too many people to even check to see if they were alive. So the coddling is is now part of our policy response. You know, and as I point out, I had this very revelatory trip to Amsterdam, which in every respect mm -hmm. is a very liberal city. You can smoke marijuana in these coffee shops they have. Psychedelics are very in fashion. Sex work is kind of decriminalized, regulated. Uh, they're not a bunch of Puritans in Amsterdam, but there's nobody on the streets. There's no homeless people, so-called homeless people. There's nobody on the streets using drugs. They make people stay in shelter and they enforce their laws. And so this, what we have in San Francisco, it's a more radical, you know, because there's people, you know, in Boston and New York, we are now starting to see open drug scenes. We have, a, there's now a big open drug scene in Boston. Mm -hmm. But it's nothing like the West Coast. So it's really the combination of a kind of Wild West libertarianism and libertinism with a kind of progressive victimology. That's been what's been so toxic and devastating for uh, for people suffering from addiction and drug and, and mental illness. Yeah. Now, I know in writing the book, you kind of went on a on a search to see, OK, who is actually addressing this correctly? Who's doing this well? Like you said, you went to Amsterdam, you spent time in the Netherlands, you talked to leaders. What did you discover uh, that the Dutch are, are doing really well? And what are some of the principles that you learned from them that you're trying to convince individuals in America, hey, we could actually do this here? Yeah, I mean, what I discovered ought to be great news for both reasonable liberals and reasonable conservatives. You know, the first thing is that in Amsterdam, they have the the back end services. So they have shelter for everybody that needs shelter. They have housing for the people that really do need subsidized housing. They have psychiatric beds and psychiatric care for the people that need that. Um, they have the police working with the social workers. You know, it's both mm -hmm. and. So in some ways, it may sound really... Like I'm trying to be, there's a lot of fake bipartisanship right now. There's a lot of fake efforts at it, but this is really truly both and approach. You need police and you need social workers. They're not the same thing, but they need to work together. And so you get these buddy stories of police and social workers that have been working together in Netherlands that are really important. You know, we're starting to see some of that in the United States, but not nearly enough. 
you know, one question is, do you need to have, you know, single payer healthcare? I mean, that's what the left has long wanted, right? They want socialized medicine. Amsterdam does not have socialized medicine, but they do have universal coverage. And so they actually have a private insurance model that like we have in the United States, but they, you make sure that everybody's covered. And so that is something that we need to do. That's something that I think reasonable conservatives and liberals would agree on, you know, to some extent we have that with Medicaid, but you can't be in situations where we don't have insurance to cover people's psychiatric care. The other thing is there's some amount of discernment. I mean, my aunt had schizophrenia. She had a pretty good life for a for a person with, with schizophrenia, which is a very serious mental illness. She lived in, uh, in a group home, as we call it, residential care. She had her own room. She shared a house and a kitchen and a living space with other people, but she didn't work. She couldn't work. Some people with schizophrenia can work, but she wasn't able to. I think most conservatives understand that there's a certain number of people in our society with mental disabilities like schizophrenia who, if they can work, it's great for them and it's great for everybody else, but some of them can't. But that's different from a 25-year-old guy who's addicted to heroin, you know, who probably just needed an antidepressant and some purpose in life and some Jordan Peterson lectures um, in order to get on the straight and narrow. Um, that, that young man needs to get his life in order. And that means that he needs to be, after he breaks the law, if you're a street addict, you're breaking the law every day, usually, including theft to sustain your drug habit. He needs to be offered the choice of, if a, you know, when arrested, offered the choice of jail or drug rehab. And then he needs a personal plan. He needs an assertive caseworker. He needs to have a, uh, he needs to know what he's going to do when he gets out of rehab. He needs to have a job. He needs to have a place he's going to live, preferably living somewhere far away from open drug scenes. And the drug scenes need to be shut down. You can't allow open air drug dealing in a city. I mean, it's absurd. We have, you know, like literally two dozen drug dealers selling you any amount of drugs in not just San Francisco, but other major cities in the United States. We have to shut that down. This is not rocket science. You can't allow open drug dealing. Does that mean that you're going to eliminate drug dealing? No, but I'll tell you, it's interesting. Um, if you're if you're an addict and it's and there's no open drug dealing, you often have to spend a bunch of your day finding your drugs, buying them, and that means you end up doing less drugs. So it's not it's not great, you know. I'd love to see fentanyl eliminated and meth, but these are highly concentrated drugs. We haven't been able to get rid of them. I think the idea that we can stop China or Mexico from getting them over the border is a fantasy. You can mail enough fentanyl to somebody through FedEx to supply an entire city, but you can shut down the open drug dealing. That's easy. Shut it down. The addicts will end up using less. Um, right now it's too easy. You know, the open drug scenes are addicts living in open drug markets and they're just ending up using hard drugs every four hours. I mean, it's barbaric and it makes them sick and they die and, so, you know, you can't allow that, but we do need a better, I think the message for conservatives is that, and, and the liberals too, but I think in the sense that you do need a, to fix our psychiatric and addiction care system, it's just not working. And I think that is something that I did find some agreement among conservatives with. 
there's just not a free market. There's not a market among schizophrenics to pay for their mental health care. They just don't have the money and they can't do it. And even addicts are people that have spent basically all their resources and stolen usually from family and friends to sustain their habit. That's just not something that's going to be served by free markets. There's got to be some amount of government involvement and it just should be smart and it should be efficient and it should, there should be a hierarchy and there should be accountability and responsibility. So I do think there's plenty in the proposal that I'm making for Cal psych to centralize addiction and psychiatric care to appeal to both reasonable Republicans and to reasonable Democrats. When it goes with uh, the analogy that, that you have given, I know in the past of the carrot and the stick, correct? Of, okay, we need to make sure that we're actually motivating individuals who are on drugs to make changes in their life. And then uh, there have to be consequences when, uh, when proper you know, action isn't taken. It seems so basic, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it was one of those things where you, when I asked my, the character in the book, the terrific character, his name is Rene, he's Dutch. He's actually a nurse. He was a former professional soccer player, very charismatic, very blunt. And I was like, and the, he and his wife, who's a member of parliament, they love to travel. So they love San Francisco. And I was like, what? what is going on in my hometown? What's, what are we doing wrong? And he was like, you look, he goes, look, dude, you need carrots and sticks. You got to have carrots and sticks. You got to have consequences for bad behavior. You got to enforce the law. Um, at the same time, you should reward people, you know, addicts what's happening. We now know, you know, at the brain chemistry level, although honestly addiction science hasn't progressed that much, but we know that addicts are seeking rewards. So you want to provide some other reward, as a kind of high, a dopamine high for addicts when they perform well. So if you pass your drug test, you should get something, you know, a gift card, you should be, get your own private room, you should, you know, something should be done as a carrot for you. It seems so basic, but basically what we've done in progressive cities out of this softening, this coddling in the culture is we've removed all the sticks. We've mm -hmm. actually removed the carrots too, because the, the even giving, when you give, somebody something that they have not earned it's not actually a mm -hmm. carrot it's an entitlement at that point and so for it to be yeah. a true reward you have to earn it that's why participation trophies are so terrible kids know I, why am i getting a participation trophy i lost and it's supposed mm -hmm. to it's supposed to feel bad to lose like um <laughs> you should feel good to play the game. You should feel like you'd have fun playing the game, but you shouldn't get a trophy for playing the game. And so similarly, you should not give people housing for being a drug addict. You know, you should get, if you're down on your mm -hmm. luck, maybe you, and you, and you quit drugs, then maybe you do get some housing or some subsidized housing or some reward, but, but not for your bad habits. Now, I know that you have spoken with leaders in, in California and, and other West Coast cities that are experiencing these issues. Do they recognize that there is an issue? And if so, why aren't they taking steps to actually bring change? Yeah. I mean, this is the craziest thing. I mean, I found a lot of agreement from both liberals and conservatives for the program that I'm advocating, which is just a modified Dutch model, a modified European model. Um, I interviewed Governor Gavin Newsom, California Governor Gavin Newsom's top advisor on mental health, homelessness, and addiction. 
His name is Thomas Insull. He worked at the National Institute of Mental Health for 12 years. He was the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. The man and I had a Zoom conversation for over an hour. He's got his own book coming out. And we were like finishing each other's sentences. I mean, like we didn't disagree on anything, like literally zero. We had zero disagreements. And I just asked him, I was like, you know, Tom, like, can you go talk to the governor? <laughs> um, like, what's going on? Like, why is this not happening? And he just kept, he just like, well, the people in Sacramento, they say you have to modify the constitution. Okay, so let's modify the constitution. That's actually not as hard as it may sound. We pass ballot initiatives all the time in California to modify the constitution. It's just one of the things we love to do that in California. He finally said, and he said it six times in our interview, it's a leadership problem. It's a leadership problem. It's a leadership problem, which is as close hmm. as he would come to basically saying Gavin Newsom is not the leader that we need. Because he obviously, Tom Insull has to be a political person. He's a very good person, by the way. I, I mean, it's not a criticism at all. We've got a problem with our political leadership. Obviously, I think you need new leadership in California. Um, can that can someone beat Gavin Newsom next year in the run for governor? Very hard. Gavin Newsom has so much money. So to some extent, what I'm talking about here is the need for significant political change. And I think that Democrats certainly need to change, but I think Republicans need to contest Democrats and democratic rule on these issues. And I'll tell you something that really I found inspiring is that the way that in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, it took political change. It took really a political revolution whereby the center right defeated the left-wing parties on this issue, on this issue of open drug scenes. And that is how, that is why the Dutch government, and the Dutch government has been a center right government. I mean, if it were translated into American context, it might be more like center left, I don't know. But in, in the Netherlands, it was center right. They defeated the left on this issue. And so what I would say to my Republican friends, and I'm an independent, is, is I would say, start competing with Democrats on this issue, um, have a proper agenda. And I think that that's not just what it's been to date. I think what it's been to date is I hear Republicans and conservatives talk a lot about the need for the churches and the charities and private sector solutions. That's not good enough. There has to be a governmental response. And so for me, if the center right is going to be the change that we need in the world, then they need to change, I think, the agenda that they're offering. Um, and we're starting to see some of that. I did see uh, Republican candidates in the recall that, that just failed attempt to offer that. But I think much more should be done both at the state and the federal level by conservatives and Republicans to offer a proper agenda to deal with this problem. Because you know, California, it's the number one issue. It's not the number one issue nationwide, but it's the number one issue in California. And it's also now a big issue in Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, New York, other big cities where conservatives, um, Republicans, center-right candidates uh, want to start contesting democratic rule. So in the model that you have created, taking uh, taking pieces from the Netherlands, what they do there and how to address homelessness, drug addiction, mental health, what is step one? What is the action that uh, that progressive cities need to take today to start fixing this problem? 
Yeah, I mean, the first thing is shut down the open air drug dealing. There's no need for that. Build emergency shelters, require people to use them. Do triage. If you want to earn housing and make progress on your personal plan, I think the issue needs to be handled statewide so that people that are that are arrested in the open drug scene in San Francisco can get treatment in Fresno, can get treatment a couple hundred miles away, away from where the temptations of drugs are. I'm completely practical when it comes to dealing with addiction. Some addicts need opioid substitutes. They might need, you know, methadone or suboxone as a substitute. That's fine. I think that there's something more heroic about becoming completely sober and abstinent, but I don't, I think we're dealing with a massive drug epidemic and we should, we don't, we can't be perfectionists about this. Or we can't make the perfect enemy the good. So shelter first, treatment first, earn, housing earned, make psychiatric and addiction care a statewide function, create CalPsych. And then we probably need to, you know, I, I mean, I'm not totally sure. I mean, it was funny because I would get to this place with this book where I go, gosh, you know, is the problem the the liberal laws? Is it the liberal judges or is it the 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 politicians and the public it's kind of all three so one question mm. one question is how much can be done under existing laws the short answer is a lot um do we need to change some of the laws too probably um but again that's what you have leadership for because if you have political leadership then the leadership you know for example if we had a, a, a truly great governor, the governor would come in and say, would do as much as you could through executive order. You would then put forward a big legislative package or separate legislative vehicles, it depends, in front of the legislature. And then you would also put a bunch of initiatives on the ballot. Because, you know, the thing is, the, the, the great thing about having an emergency, a, cri a true crisis like this one, is that you have the will of the people to want to solve this. I mean, the public in California are just we're fed up. I mean, people are fleeing the state. We're desperate. I mean, honestly, it's gotten so bad that the real issue, I think, is just the cynicism that people believe that nothing can be done. And we're ended up losing mm. some of our best and brightest people to New York and Miami and, and other states. Yeah. Well, you've been living in this world for so long. Are you able to kind of walk out the other side of all of this research optimistic? Do you think that there can actually be real change? I do. I find hope in a, a couple of different areas. First of all, I think that the culture is changing. I think that we're in the midst or we're at the beginning of a backlash against cancel culture, against woke religion and woke ideology. Even um, it's interesting. Uh, there are even some liberals and leftists that are expressing support for my position on drugs as well as on energy. They're starting to do so on Twitter. They get shouted down by other progressives, but they're starting to kind of you know poke their head up out of the um, you know out of the out of the tunnels to sort of say, hey, I think Schellenberger's making a good point about this. It's not moral to have people with schizophrenia on the street. So that's starting to happen in the culture. I I love these long form podcasts because you know one of the problems that this issue has had is that people go well it's really complex and that's been a way to dismiss having the conversation about what to do about it 
Long form podcasts are a way to talk about the complexity in a way that it's just much harder to do on television and sound bites. So I'm, I'm excited about what's happening in the culture. And then I just think there is a big opportunity politically for somebody to offer, you know, and honestly, I genuinely believe it could come from either the center right or the center left. California has an open primary system. So you could have a Democrat run on this agenda against Gavin Newsom next year. You could have a Republican run or you could have an independent run. So it seems to me that there's a big amount of space for some political entrepreneur who picks up this agenda. Uh, my, I and my organization have helped to create a new statewide coalition called the California Peace Coalition because we don't have peace in the streets. We don't have peace, peace in people's minds. And we've attracted support from parents of kids killed by fentanyl, parents of kids addicted to fentanyl, mm. recovering addicts, community leaders, and, and just interested citizens like myself. And I do think that it's created a kind of opportunity for, for a different approach than the one that's been pursued either by the left or the right on these questions for the last 30 years. The book is San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. You can follow Michael on Twitter at MD, You can get a copy of the book on, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can listen to it on Audible. Uh, we could, Michael, we could keep going, <laughs> but want to let you go. Certainly. But thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate your insight. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for having me on. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you all tomorrow morning. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.